Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. I am very excited for today's guest. I was stumbling through LinkedIn over the holidays, and I came across an article from a guest that was on the show, Daniel Goldstein, back in 2018. I've stayed in touch with Daniel, and he just retired from the CEO of Foliance, and he wrote an article called Beyond Rainbows and Unicorns, the case for talking about ESOP companies as a business. And the reason I'm excited to have Daniel back on the show is because He has had a lot of activity since 2018 when he was on the show. He became the CEO of Foliance in 2017, and his whole goal was to take this 134-year-old business that had been concentrated in the traditional media space to diversify its portfolio as an ESOP holding company. They ended up buying ambulance manufacturers as well as a horse and trailer livestock manufacturer and some other companies. And so Daniel's been doing all of that since I spoke to him last, and they've had crazy growth and a higher performance than they've had in a long time. In 2020, the ESOP achieved its highest share value since the inception of the ESOP in 1986. And then they were awarded the 2022 National Employee-Owned Company of the Year by the ESOP Association. Daniel also sits on the board of many ESOPs, and he previously just retired from the executive board of the ESOP Association as well. And so Daniel has been heavily involved in employee ownership after coming from a traditional finance background, working with a lot of high net worth individuals as well as a lot of uh, investors. And Daniel is going to be talking to me today about what is the case for ESOPs, how ESOPs play a role in growing equity value for the founders, for the original people that created the company, as well as the employees. And he's going to be talking about how ESOP holding companies work and how they benefit not just the financial well-being, but also the health of uh, the employees who work at the companies too. And I think this is just a great conversation around why an ESOP can be a potential valuable exit for anybody to monetize their company, whether you're going to sell to an ESOP and you actually want to take all your chips off the table, but you don't want to do an ESOP. There's just a lot of ground that we cover in this conversation. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And I really hope you enjoy this interview with Daniel. This episode is brought to you by Arcona's Fractional CFO Services. Arcona's Fractional CFOs integrate into your management team and assume the responsibility of the CFO. They become your strategic financial partner to help you run the business, create your value growth plan, and build the financial roadmap to the valuation you want to achieve. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. I am so excited for this conversation. It took all my uh, all my uh, energy to resist just diving into all the questions right <laughs> when we were just chatting. Um, I'll kind of I'll put a container on it. Daniel is uh, our conversation is I I think it was 2017. You're on the podcast, and I don't know if you just started at Foliance or it had been just about a year. Um, and okay. I've just been named CEO. And actually, I need to start with my disclaimer. So I, okay. am, I as we're going to get into, I, I am no longer associated with uh, Folance. I've, I've retired from my role. 
and I am not representing any other entity which I may be associated with. This is just <laughs> Daniel Goldstein speaking. As a matter of fact, I have set up my own entity called GoESOP LLC. I so <laughs> I will show up today as the CEO of GoESOP LLC. Independent thinker. I love Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I, I love it. Unfiltered. Well, and I think what's so, like, when I had reached out, you had posted uh, um, an article on LinkedIn, and I realized it had been six years. And so I'll kind of start it with what I had said uh, in the pre-call is like when I interviewed you and I had named it like 134-year-old company, the purest form of capitalism, and I had barely understood ESOPs, man. And now I'm like down the rabbit hole about like how they're structured, why, and all these different things. And I just wanted to get back, get you back on. And then you just recently said that, well, you're doing other things now. And so I'll let you explain to the audience what you're doing. But I just thought, for my own personal journey is like you never step into the same river twice and i just can go back and i think about all of the things you said and how true they are but i just didn't know how true they were <laughs> six years ago so you why don't you both. just give everybody like what what, <laughs> what foliance was doing and then what you're doing now and we can unpack sure. uh, some of the topics so back in 2017 foliance was an aspirational idea of building a uh holding company of unrelated businesses and sort of real fast forward um the company acquired an ambulance manufacturing business in 2017, acquired a uh, horse and trailer manufacturing business in 2018. 2019, everything was just going great for all the businesses, including the media business. And so 2020 was going to be the year. And of course, then March of 2020 yeah. <laughs> hit. And so that uh, changed everybody's plans. And what it also did was it uh, gave from going the of the aspirational and sort of the academic case study to now the actual proof that diversification can work because throughout the pandemic the company not only reached its highest share value since inception of being an esop in 1986 and then exceeded that year on year it also uh, was awarded the 2022 National Employee-Owned Company of the Year by the ESOP Association, which they're very proud of. And basically, it it works. And um, so, love it. And they started time, off for the for the listeners. It wasn't at Cedar Rapids Gazette like over a hundred years ago. So you're talking about yes. like the newspaper business and you're buying manufacturing companies in different industries. And and that newspaper business, which also includes digital assets and other uh, businesses celebrated their 140th anniversary, uh, a, almost exactly a year ago. And so wow. they're, they're in their 141st year. And so also during the pandemic, I got to the point where the company uh, is now sustain, uh, sustainable with a path forward with uh, growth and profitability, with a good culture. And I felt that it was at a point where I could uh, be free to move on and transition to a successor, which um, I did through a two-year process. And so I have just formally finished uh, three days ago uh, with Foliance. I'm not using the word retire. Um, I'm not getting <laughs> another full-time job, but... I am also not going to do nothing. So um, as people do in this situation, I set up my own LLC to effectively manage my own activities. I'm on the boards of several ESOP uh, companies around uh, the country, primarily in manufacturing, because that's an area which I have a lot of affinity for, which we can talk about. And I continue to serve on the board of the ESOP Association, the Employee Ownership Foundation. 
I'm doing more writing and uh, I'm going to be doing more research. And I, I guess this will be my- Your uh, mantra is go ESAP, right? That's your LLC name. Go ESAP. <laughs> I, I kind of get it. <laughs> I, I should have brought my old license plate here, but soon I'm going to have a new one. Um, <laughs> That's and awesome. then the other, you get a scoop because um, it has not been publicly announced, but um, also as of two days ago, I was named an executive fellow at the Rutgers Institute for the Study so of Play cool. Ownership Congratulations. and Profit And that's I'm so really cool. thrilled to be doing that. So I'll be that's headed awesome. off to and Rutgers have, next week. We have a lot to unpack with all that. And um, yeah. before we before we do, Daniel, um, what's uh, I want to give the, the, the listeners that haven't caught your previous episode is like, what were you doing before Foliance? Because like, that is interesting context, I think, for the whole journey. You just didn't pop out of the sky saying, like, go ESOP. So I think there was an interesting journey here. Well, so, so there is a joke that I, I had both a car and a uh, motorcycle, and my car license plate was go ESOP. My motorcycle license plate was ESOP because it's a smaller license plate. And the joke is that the reason why I did that is because eight years ago, I didn't know how to spell ESOP. And so <laughs> before that, but what, what it actually uh, fits with the, the merging of, of the past, for over 20 years, I worked in the um, area of family business, family investment, family foundation, family office, that's with the capital F, those are the ultra high net worth families, um, taking care of managing businesses, M&A entities, um, setting up foundations, managing yachts, all, all kinds of things. And it was probably capitalism over... and tax savings at its finest would be my thought, right? It is, and and private. Well, that is about uh, private owners getting very wealthy through their own um, entrepreneurial and and hard efforts. It's also about long term patient capital. And over twenty years ago, we started talking about in that industry the silver tsunami that was coming of the baby boomers retiring, mm -hmm. and that there's going to be the largest passage of wealth and transition of ownership, not just of, of financial assets but of businesses mm -hmm. uh, coming up. And so, as I got into the ESOP world, there, there's that great continuation of those two that a lot of these uh, privately owned businesses are uh, very eligibly going to be transitioning or could be transitioning to employee ownership, which keeps the companies local, invests in the employees, continues the brand, the legacy, and uh, rewards those employees that help build the wealth for the private owners. But that reward is earned. And that's where it goes back to the purest form of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I used to say that the um, stock that employee owners received was free because they don't ever pay for it. But I was admonished by employee owners who said, we work hard for that. So I wake up and put my boots on and, <laughs> and it works before we get in. Because I think, again, we're, I want to get into what you're going to be exploring. And, and we have a, we have kind of a short list of topics that we're going to unpack. But Dan, like. I'm curious. So you said that, you know, on your motorcycle, you just had ESAP and you didn't know how it's, uh, how it was spelled. And it's funny because my partners have said the same thing before they did the ESAP. Cause they're like, yeah, I didn't know how to sub, how to spell ESAP. And then six months later we did an ESAP with almost 300 employees. So like, and I feel like I had a similar, so a similar situation where like all of my background lent insight to when I heard about it, I was like, what the hell? And then it was just like this expedited, like drinking through a fire hose, but it wasn't where like it was leaking out the side. It was like, it all just made sense to me. So like, what happened to you? Like when you heard about it, what was, 
what was your mindset or your thought process that at that time where it clicked for you? So um, great question. And um, I knew that what when, when I was named president CEO of the company, that I needed to get some additional development. And I've owned my own businesses. I've managed businesses. I, I have an MBA and a second master's degree. And I knew that that wasn't going to be enough. And so I went out and researched, and there's a great program uh, called Leading in an Ownership Setting, which is held at the University of Pennsylvania. And anyone can go on to the Employee Ownership Foundation uh, website. It's employeeownershipfoundation.org to find information about this. Dr. Ginny Vanderslice started this program over 20 years ago, and it is specifically and uniquely the only program that is geared towards developing the president CEO of an ESA. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to unpack all of this and, and peel back the layers of the onion. Because what you see a lot of information about is that an ESOP is a financial scheme. And um, there are people out there touting that it's tax-free and all this. Yes, and that is a very minimal part of this. It's one puzzle piece of the entire picture. Yeah. yeah, and and then there's the other misnomer that it, once you become employee owned, that that does everything, and actually it doesn't. As a matter of fact, it can create um, more confusion, entitlement, and problems if you don't educate employees on what it means to be an employee owner, because there's a huge difference between being an owner or or the owner and being an employee owner. Mm -hmm. So an employee owner, employee ownership is about shared value and helping to educate on how your contributions lead to productivity, safety, profitability, et cetera. But it's not about being an owner. For one thing, you don't have the liability. The other thing is that it's not um, like a co-op structure where it's one vote per employee. It, it is a very different thing. So going through this program was the start of that. And I learned early on from uh, listening to a CEO of another very successful ESOP, he, he said something interesting that they offer a financial benefit to their employee owners because of the great employee ownership culture they have. And that's when a light bulb went off that you can't do it the other way around. And the, the company that I was in had for many years led with there's a financial benefit and then sort of tried mm -hmm. to add on some culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work because when share prices go up, people say that's great, and then they don't pay attention. When they go down, they usually say something which is not that's great, <laughs> and they blame management. Instead, if you turn it around and you lead with culture and then add on the financial benefit, then you get people's attention. And, and mm -hmm. I've often said that I, I can't think of a single long-term employee owner or short-term uh, tenured employee owner who comes in in the morning, looks up their ESOP account, and says, okay, I'm motivated for the day. That happens once or twice a year, particularly right. when you get the new share reveal. And so it's really about leading with the culture. Um, it, I love how you've uh, unpacked that. And uh, curious in what you think about when I, when I describe how I think about this topic is like, couple of different comments that I make because you know I'm having these conversations on a daily basis of comparing this to other structures and people are like, well, an ESOP breeds socialism. And I'm like, or or an ESOP, you know, like whatever it might be. And they're talking about what people are doing. And I'm like, if you're a C Corp or an LLC, does it impact your culture? 
like what I'm trying to explain is like like just because the financial ownership structure is a certain way, like it's not going to change the people's behavior. Management still has to change the people's behavior. And then the way I kind of think about it is like, you know, I ran a, a sales team of 24 people where it's like you can have a great sales team and a shitty comp plan. And at some point, that's not going to work. Those salespeople are going to go leave to go somewhere else, or you can have a great comp plan and a crappy sales team. But if you have both, it's it's so like it, it, I, I I'm trying to help because I, I'm I'm tracking yeah. exactly what you're saying. Where it's the combination of the people leveraging the culture and then having the this. I think where you had said in our last conversation, the purest form of capitalism, where the incentive structure is optimized, where everybody gets what they've earned not what they've given for free or not, you know, they, they're disproportionately not given what other people have. And let, let me, um, I, I'm known for using little stories. So let me give you a, a little story. One, one of the things I did when I was working in my prior life before the ESOP world is with a uh, private family foundation, I got involved with special uh, summer camp programs for kids with cancer and serious illness. And I'd had a wonderful opportunity to work with Paul Newman before he passed away. And I started an international program, which still continues in different form today. But while this program is for kids with serious illness, any kid who, if they could have gone through this program, would have benefited from it. Because it's all about getting out of your comfort zone, not going into mm -hmm. your panic zone, giving you better self-reliance, giving you better challenges by choice to help you find how to grow. It's the same thing with employee ownership. The stuff that we do in ESOPs would be great in any company. Mm -hmm. It's just a little bit more authentic within ESOP because that's where then where you do have the financial benefit, you're also going to be able to show how people are are benefiting mm, financially like that. from that. Yeah, but like any that. company, if they treated their employees well and got them engaged and made them safe, you know Tom and... Walter from Tasty Catering by chance? I don't. No. Um, you you would really like him. Um, <laughs> but he's got he's got everything an ESOP culture would have, but he's not an ESOP. And I said, and I asked him like, do you do you think you need to be an ESOP? And he and he, his particular answer with his situation was his employees actually don't want the ownership it, like like as far as the reliability or the, the liability in in whatever context he was in his situation it was in it made sense but like it still worked his culture was still great but if you were to enhance that i think by like people creating financial wealth at the same time i'm assuming there would be a net positive i, I mean that, that's an assumption that i maybe shouldn't make but it feels right to me <laughs> agreed and, and so all of this, um, that's not socialism. I mean, it, 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 in having good job satisfaction, in, enjoying working in a safe environment, being able to engage to your fullest uh, level of participation that you want to bring, that's not socialism. That, that's just a, a great place to work. And I, I didn't do the math for today, so I'm not going to be able to do it. But if you assume that most people are going to work 40 years maybe more uh, during their lifetime, and just assume a 40-hour week. If you start doing the math of uh, 40 times 52 times 40, that's a long time to be spending in a work environment that is oppressive, demeaning, unsafe. Like, that's why this is not socialism. This is a majority of your life is spent in that environment. Doesn't everybody want to enjoy that to some extent? Well, well, amen to that. But all and and 
that and is I think about, okay, so there's two comments that I want to hear your, your thoughts on is one is that like my wife, <laughs> our pillow, the listeners have heard this, her, our pillow talking, you know, like you can only imagine what it is, but like, you know, the, two years ago, she's looking for a new job and I'm like, why would you go work for anywhere that you don't get equity? So if you're going to work and get a W-2 paycheck and have to after tax, so reduce your annual income to put 18 grand into a 401k that's going to be worth who knows what in 30 years, given the whole system, or you could just work and get equity every single year based on your percentage of payroll. Like if you're going to spend that time anyways, why wouldn't you get the, why wouldn't you want to go get the equity growth? Well, so now she God, God bless it, but she's working at an ESOP and has for two years now. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. It's like she sought out an employer that was an ESOP for that reason. So, but, um, so I, I'd say that that's a comment on the, on the equity growth just for the pure time. It's like how you accidentally just end up paying your house off if you live in the same house by working. And the second comment, Daniel, is uh, maybe speak to like one of my listeners, they, they, they understand that I'm a big proponent of you have to take off and separate your ownership hat that is that cares about equity growth and the trade-offs between reinvestment and distributions compared to then your owner or your leadership hat, which is operations. And like when the NESOP, it's very clearly distinguished to those two. And so when you're, you're coming out the socialism that people have and like, it's just an org chart, right? With payroll, like the, the forklift driver is not giving you the CEO, you know, voting rights about whether you should buy the ambulance company, right? And, and so, and, and that, that article that you mentioned, um, the, the, Title is Beyond Rainbows and Unicorns, the case for considering these options businesses. <laughs> and it's it so because there, that is actually what you need to do. It is still a business. And a business needs the right people at every role making decisions because they have the experience, the skills, the training, development, the information, etc. So ESOPs do tend to be much more transparent and include more people in that, but it's not rule by committee and it's not the forklift driver deciding how to allocate capital, but it's not the CFO deciding how to drive a forklift. So it works both ways. <laughs> That's and a good way to put it. <laughs> because I, I get that sometimes, you know, do you have a production worker sitting on the board? And I say, no, because if you looked at the board that uh, we had, um, that is still there, it, it's very high performing. People that have really specific skills, industry experience, networks, training, development, et cetera, to be making those decisions. I've never had anyone say, hey, can we get a board member to tell the welder how to do their job? And, mm -hmm. and that would be the flip of that. So there, there's that. As far as the um, ownership distribution, that's really interesting because it's actually getting back to that capital allocation. Um, and, and so, for example, I remember that um, at one point, I, I think it was when um, we were announcing the acquisition of the horse and trailer company, I got a question of why are we spending money to buy a company when we could just be distributing that to employees? And good it's a question, great question to answer. Yeah, I love and it. Show so me your intent, Daniel. <laughs> that's all about investing to um, grow value in the future sustainably and with compounding capital appreciation. You know, the, the sort of analogy would be why don't you just sell your house, take out whatever equity is in it, and just spend it all? 
on TVs, new Disney cars, World, vacations, yeah. etc. <laughs> well, you don't do that because you're building up a store of value for your future. And I that's the it. same thing, whether you're investing to acquire a company, you're investing in CapEx, automated uh, advanced manufacturing technology, etc. There's that trade-off between you want to be distributing what is enough for competitive wage benefits, et cetera, to uh, get you through your income side, which is getting mm -hmm. to the end of the month and the end of the year. But you want to store up enough with capital appreciation to get you through the wealth side, which is getting you through your retirement. That is so beautiful, Daniel. And like, it's so in line with uh, like the, 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 I mean, what I'm, out or promoting with intentional growth. And it's really this target equity valuation and understanding the trade-offs of distributions versus reinvestment. And the only way that I, I believe that people can have this lens is if they understand valuations, because like that, isn't that just like at the fundamental level, like what life is about is like, okay, we need more money today, but how does that impact our future? Right. And then like, okay, well, if we take more today, what are our expectations for the future? And it's just this balance between the, you know, short term and long term. And that's really what you're just highlighting. And what I find so fascinating, and this will maybe we can uh, start going down the rabbit hole of the uh, the holding company. And I know there's a couple other topics we talked about, but, but what but I find Ryan, can I yeah, interrupt yeah, yeah, for one yeah, second? Absolutely. Because absolutely. Besides being the um purest form of capitalism, one of the greatest um, arguments against the socialism, and I'm going to have to ruin your podcast to stand up to reach for something. It's uh, all good. You got the blurred background. You got it. You nailed it. I, I'm going to have to think <laughs> off the blurred background for a moment to show my uh, bare wall behind me, because this is not only the uh, purest form of capitalism, it also has to do with American history. And so everyone should read The Citizen's Share, written by Joseph Lousy, um, Richard Freeman, Douglas Cruz. And what wow, this does it. is it traces employee ownership to the very foundations of our country. And so, and this is not political on either side, no matter what you it's believe about our country. Well, it, it's about the whole foundations of why this country was founded. And oh so gosh. employee ownership, the ESOP, is uh, coming into its 50th anniversary this year of being legislated in 1974 with ERISA. But the, the concept of employee ownership actually predates that by, by centuries. And I won't get into the whole thing, but readers should absolutely read that book. Well, I'm I'm too curious because I have not read that book. And by the time, hopefully the listeners hear me next, I will have because I can't get enough of this stuff. What is like, what? It's really funny, and I I don't want to digress too much, but I'm like I I'm so sick and tired of the crap going on of the crony capitalism, man. We're like, hey, does J does uh, Jamie Dimon make any more money? And how about Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone? And I love capitalism too, which is the the my frustrating part because it's a nuanced conversation. But I'm sitting here going like, well, if we have democracy, like when I think about Daniel, like so my wife earns shares based on her percentage of wages of the total payroll and. If she has a higher paycheck, it's because she should be pro providing more value to the share growth. And it's like, well, no, like, duh. Like, it's just like so freaking ridiculous. We're like, right now we have this mismatch. We're like, we we don't, we tax ordinary income off the charts, which small business owners that have a pass through K-1 get hurt with that compared to the long-term capital gains where Steve Schwartzman and Blackstone can buy our single family houses and not pay any taxes. And it's just like, if you just look at the landscape, it's so out of whack, but I go like, Hey, what if you were just to create a freaking ESOP 
for the whole country. And then like there, there we got social security, we got our pensions. And like, if everybody just had a full payroll of the whole U S and said, okay, like I, and I know that's, and that's not socialism. And I'm just like, it's an incentive issue. And then how out of whack it is right now. And like, I'm so I'm curious with that book, like, how does it, like, how does it take that concept? And like, where, like, what were the thought processes behind, behind so, that book and the, the, the foundation? So for example, and, and I'm not going to do justice to this. I, I, I wish I had Joseph Blasey here or, or others. But, <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> uh, back in the 1600s, maybe 1500s, but 1600s, I, I believe it was the cod fishing boats. The, the crew on the boat actually owned a share. And so whatever the catch was, they owned a mm. share of the catch. They weren't just paid for their time working on the boat. And I mean, that that's basically output, like, yeah, an like it's labor and output, right? Like you, yeah. you're on the boat working with your time and then you have a certain amount of catch that comes in. Super fascinating. That's and super and fascinating. there, there right are other the... interesting um, things that, that go back over time. You know, the, the fact that once upon a time, people lived in what was um, sort of self, self-reliant um, agricultural um you know, you basically produced what was on your land and you got to own that if you owned your land. Now, the problem is, and again, I'm paraphrasing the book and not doing it justice, land is finite. And as land started to be gobbled up by people that had more wealth, there was even less land to uh, divide between people. And so being self-reliant was going to be very difficult. And it was understood that shares are not finite. Shares can be infinite because you can have as many companies with as many shares. And so there's not that finite um, control of who gets to have land and earn what they produce with shares. Mm. You don't have that constraint. And so you mm-hmm. can get shares into the hands of more people. And then they can, like your wife, like I was doing, they can benefit from that by oh, you know building who's struggling with this right now? earning shares do a little rabbit hole on uh on farmers and who owns the land compared to who's actually producing the 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 actual food right now i mean holy crap man like you can go into a dark place going down that rabbit hole (laughs) it's like you know they're paying rent and they're you know the it's fifteen thousand twenty you know twenty five thousand dollars an acre and they can't even afford to buy their own land or afford to rent their own land but they're the ones sitting with all the machinery and they're just i mean it's a it but i think that analogy of the fisherman and then the catch is just so it's beautiful i mean and like and so like let's talk about how what, what this is actually tied right into the next question i was going to ask about like your holding company because when i think about it it's not just the cedar rapids gazette it's like if you at the end of the day if it's i'm waking up next to daniel and like the reality is i want to have enough income so does daniel and then we also both want to have enough wealth to be fine later how do we share? How do we diversify our risk of making sure that you and I are fine long term? Yeah. And so and, how does again, that how does that go into then like the holding co? So and and again, speaking of hold co's in general, uh, I make the analogy that in your four hundred one k, you don't just own one stock. And sure, if you bought Apple at the right time and you held it, that would be great. But if you get in and out of it at different times, then you're going to be killed by the volatility. A hold co, well, well, an ESOP is great. And because if you didn't work for an ESOP, you wouldn't have any stock whatsoever. 
it is just one stock. Beholdco gives you that diversification of a portfolio of companies that lead to the value of that ESOP. And again, um, during the pandemic, that diversification of unrelated uh, companies within the Foliance portfolio proved to be not only uh, successful, but so successful that it reached um, that, that highest share price and has grown since then. And there are other hold codes like that. And so now that I'm not associated with Foliance, I can also just talk in general about holding companies. I think that it's a great path to get companies to transition to employee ownership because it eliminates a lot of the costs and, and risk of becoming a standalone ESOP. And I think there's even going to be a role in the future of consolidation within the ESOP community that there are going to be ESOPs, probably some smaller ones, that they really haven't provided for the succession of the administration and compliance of the ESOP. Mm -hmm. And so if they got together on a platform, there's the economic scalability of that centralized administration compliance, the, the evaluation trustee, et cetera. And then by having a shared services model, they can afford competencies and technologies that they wouldn't be able to afford on their own. Pardon the brief interruption. I just want to explain to you why I think the Intentional Growth Academy or Starter Kit might be something worth looking into. If you're interested in how ESOPs work and how they even potentially compare to private equity, in the Intentional Growth Academy, the online academy that you can see in the link below, I have whiteboarded videos out of exactly how the money flows, how the deal structure works, how vesting works for employees, like how ESOPs should be structured, and how, what that might mean for your cash up front, your job, your legacy, your financial targets, everything, as well as private equity. So if you're curious on how an ESOP works and how it stacks up to everything else, Go check out the starter kit if you're not ready to jump in, or there's a coupon code in the link below for 500 bucks off the $1,500 do-it-yourself version of the online academy. Or if you're interested in a two-month coaching program with myself, it's 5,000 bucks for two months. It comes with six calls, and it comes with the online academy as well as a financial assessment. And if you're wondering about whether that it's a fit or not, all you have to do is schedule a discovery call in the link below. But no matter what, I'd say the best place to do is, is to start learning how this stuff works because as you can tell, I'm very fascinated about this topic and you don't have to know everything about it, but I think the biggest key component of this is understanding how it works so you can say, yes, I do want to do that or no, I don't, and you can explain why. Go check out the starter kit or schedule discovery call below. Thanks everybody and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation with Daniel. I mean, it's the same, isn't it, the, Daniel, like the exact same logic that goes mechanically. So it's kind of like, the again, there's, if we're, if we're separating the two discussions of ownership versus operations, operationally, roll-ups make sense mechanically all the time. It's just like, it ends up with, that's what, that's where the, it's like the, the Pac-Man where it ends up in like the 14 people in is, or, uh, Saudi Arabia's private equity fund instead of like everybody else. And and, and and that's the difference, though, that the private equity roll-ups, do they make sense? Um, maybe for the investors, not always for the employees, not always for the uh, communities where the companies are located. What's nice about this, if you do a roll-up in the ESOP world into an ESOP Holdco, it's still patient long-term capital. And it's still making an investment in the employees, the brand, the community. And so th th that's the big difference. And one of the things that I specifically did uh, was to, in, in the terms of today, 
appropriate a term from uh, private equity in describing finance as a platform for professional uh, growth and ownership, because I wanted to use that term platform. It's just, it's a totally different platform when you're an ESOP holding company than when you're a roll-up private equity company. You don't have that need to, within three to five years, go through another uh, sale or transition to compress the IRR to return to your investors. I love it. And, and so I want to unpack this a little bit further, but one of my, um, one of my comments is, is, uh, you know, what I see a lot, Daniel is, um, so like the first principle of the five intentional growth principles, like what the heck do you want for the, for the owner and the, and who's generally got the CEO title. So it's again, they, they generally have both hats, like the privately held company. I have, you know, a percentage or a good percentage of this company for my ownership, but I'm also running the business and, what I always like and where I came up with that, uh, not came up with it, where I just, it became obvious to me is like so many people were calling me up and saying, Ryan, I want out. And I would, I would just jump in and try to help them solve it. And I'm like, actually after years, Dan, I'm like, I don't know what the hell people want out of. And what happened was people would want out of employee review, supply chain issues. And it was more the job, not necessarily their asset. And so, but when I then layer on so that concept, like, what are we trying to get out of? And most of the people it was like, I'm going to summarize a huge uh, general, like a, a couple thousand people that have said this to me is like, it's really, I want to have more strategic ideas and responsibility and less day to day crap. And I want to diversify my wealth where I want to essentially take some of my chips off the table. But I think it's got to be eight out of 10, Daniel, where like, if they were to have a job, job where they are making strategic decisions, I'm like, hey, should we buy this company? What product should we launch? You know, who's, you know, like essentially on the board or on the CEO level, moving money around. I think like there's just like this, this idea of like, hey, if I got onto the point where I could diversify and get like my job, you know, the, the crappy responsibilities out, they could move money around and people don't need uh, you know, 50 million bucks in cash to put into a Charles Schwab account for then, a, you know, a family office to manage. It's really like, I want my five or 10 million bucks to make my two to $500,000 and just take a deep breath. And then essentially go do the job that you did, which is you were, because you don't have to be in private equity to do the capital allocation roll up strategy. Like you did that for six years inside of an ESOP structure. And let me tell you, uh, it, it, very specific example of this. I, I got a great opportunity to um, go and visit with Michael and Lynn Terry uh, this past year. They they were the founders of uh, Simran Trailers and and sold it to Folance. And they they wanted out, which meant that they wanted to uh, retire, spend time with their grandkids, to sort of slow down and and enjoy life after working really hard for a really long time mm -hmm. to to build this great company, and they were really concerned that it went to be owned by the employees with an investment commitment to keep it in the community. And they were concerned that if the employees had to both manage the business and an ESOP, that there would uh, be a distraction, which is why they liked the finance platform. How, how big of a, do uh, you mind me giving, uh, or giving some context of like how many employees did finance have at this time and how many employees they had? You, you knew where I was going with this, Ryan. So I was just about to say that because when um, I first met Michael and Lynn Terry, the company was 125 employees. In March of 2020, the company went down to 90 employees because 
when COVID hit, it, nobody was thinking about buying a trailer. And so yeah. immediately it, it was kind of like 2008 all over again. And then there's this, and it's in that article, there's there's this um, sort of meteoric rise of um, Simran as it uh, went through the uh, pandemic. When I sat down with Michael and Lynn, something that I, I stress to these uh, business founders, sellers, is that the legacy that they create with their company is one thing, but the legacy that they create with employee ownership to me is much more impressive because that can have multi-generational changes to um, people's lives. To, and so I said to uh, them, you know, from 90 people in March of 2020, the company now is over 200 employees and now Whoa. in two states and two locations because uh, they opened another location. And Michael looked at me and sort of admonished me and said, it's not 200 employees, Daniel, it's 200 families. And I was like, mm. you guys get it. That's and awesome. that was really cool to me because it's about creating a legacy of families. And a lot of those families have multiple generations working for the company and they will continue having even further multiple generations. So it, it's and they're, really they're working just for some context. They're working at the trailer manufacturer, but their wealth is tied into the whole portfolio of homelands, right? <laughs> like, so like, I, I mean, the, there's what, what percent chance that Cedar Rapids Gazette, the newspaper business would be around right now. And so like, you have all of these people that are diversifying their wealth based on everybody else's shared goals of having a wealth retirement that makes sense for it. And, and excuse me, there are the synergies that come across having access to capital, having uh, access to, to greater talent, competency, technology than any of the individual companies can afford individually. Share resources in the back office. And yeah. And that's why it's, and ESOP is already a great structure. And I believe that a holding company, and it's not going to be right for everyone, but a holding company ESOP can give even, even greater uh, strength and, and risk mitigation to the businesses and to the employee owners. And, and to their future. It's so cool. Um, so how, how many employees does Volans have at this point now? And how many it, different it, like business their businesses or different like units? How however you guys describe it? Or they, again, they, of, use, they not not yeah, not they, the GoEsop LLC an outsider to publicly <laughs> available information. Um, just over five hundred employee owners and three uh, families of business media. Uh, ambulance manufacturing, horse and trailer manufacturing. And I'm sure that in the future that they will continue with uh, the strategy and it let's, will uh, be. That's awesome. Um, let's, let's talk about, uh, so you and I were talking about like the safe, so there's the wealth and we've, we've spent a lot of time right now on the wealth and the financial um, incentives and stuff like that. But um, you've got a couple uh passions behind safety and manufacturing we can take whatever one of those sure. you want first but maybe the safety and like how that's different yeah so i, I started to get really uh focused on safety because um and as things were ramping up during the pandemic and work was being done in a different way because people had to socially distance because supply chain meant that things couldn't go in a linear um configuration through production, because sometimes they had to be moved off to the side to wait for uh, parts that were coming in late or whatever. That also, um, I, I noticed an increase in incidents, fortunately nothing um, too serious. And I started uh, talking with other ESOP CEOs and I heard the same thing. 
And I knew that we, we were doing something wrong, but I wasn't sure how to do it right. And fortunately, I got um, introduced to a whole different world of doing safety differently. And it was through one of our uh, partners. There's a company called Make You Safe, and mm -hmm. it's M-A-K-U-S-A-F-E. They uh, it's, it's a technology startup in Iowa that developed a wearable safety device that would look kind of like a Fitbit. And what it does is it gives you data so you can make data-driven safety decisions, which is fantastic. Mm. And in uh, learning more about them and participating in safety symposiums that they put on, I was introduced to uh, an author named Todd Conklin who um, has a great book, Doing Safety Differently. And the, the concept behind book. it is that traditionally what safety is about is management putting rules and regulations and employees breaking them because employees just don't follow rules and regulations. You know what I thought of? Honestly, I have to admit, <laughs> there's two thoughts. Like, if I was working for, quote unquote, the man without all of the stuff we've talked about and someone said, hey, Ryan, wear this trackable device so I could tell you what to do. I have all of these thoughts that come right to my head that is probably not appropriate for this podcast. So, and, 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 and there is a whole thing about um, there were a lot of people that they thought this was Big Brother and all that. It takes, again, education, transparency, sharing the data, showing how things are being improved. And, and Proving to them that you're not a crazy like you know dictator yeah yeah but and, and but that's the whole thing that so people it's not that employees are bad and are breaking rules and regulations it's that how we imagine work to be done is not actually how work is done and so and I, I use a stupid example think about you know, as you reach for something to drink a beer bottle Mm -hmm. And the, the, the I'm not drinking they, a beer, by the way. It's a water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> well, a beer bottle that has a cap that you need to have a bottle opener to open the cap. Yep. So, what did we do in college when we didn't have? I brought, I chipped my tooth on doing that exact same thing. <laughs> okay. There you go. So, you just saved me. What did you do? Work as management dictates is you must use a bottle opener. Yeah. You went and you opened a, a, a bottle and you damaged something or you hurt something. Well, it's not that you're a bad person. You didn't have a bottle. I really opener. wanted that beer. You want that beer. Well, that's what a lot of employees do. They, they really want to get the job done. And so if they don't have the right tools, training, ah, that's awesome. parts, whatever, they're going to still get the work done because they're good people. They actually want to get the work done. And so what you have to do is you have to flip the script. And instead of management giving rules and regulations that says, you are doing work this way and these are the rules, you have to throw that all out and you have to go to the employees and say, how are you doing your work? How, how would that be, how can we make that safer and better? And again, I don't want to take anything away from people should read Todd's book. It's his theories and, and he eloquently describes it. But the only way that you, you get to a better safety is instead of employees being the problem, employees have to be the solution. And you what have to it? engage them. Uh, and, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, and so going. Gabe Glenn, the, the, the founder of Make You Safe, had, had this great thing that he told me. I, I think it was the first time that I met him. And he said, workplace accidents are the way that many companies find out about the risk in the workplace. Mm, interesting. And so if you engage employees, and what that means is that it actually gets to, to two things. 
One is it's about culture and leadership. So it's actually not about safety because now you're talking about engaging employees to talk about and determine how they do their work in a safe and more productive manner. And that's about leadership and leadership brings in culture, which has values. Um, I, I believe it's Todd who says safety can't be a priority because when things get tough, priorities get set aside. It has to be a value because you don't set mm, aside your yeah, values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's all about leadership and culture. And oh, by the way, once you have that good leadership and culture, you're also going to be safer. And That's awesome. Yeah. So so there's that. And then the other thing, um, Gabe asked me, why are you so concerned about this? And I told him, I'll, I'll do a very quick version of the story. When I lived in Cedar Rapids on Sunday mornings, I'd get up really early and I'd sneak out to the pool. And then I went to this little dive um, for, for breakfast because my wife didn't like going to it with me. And <laughs> it was a very- well, What was your breakfast of choice? I got to ask. <laughs> Two poached eggs and two pieces of toast. And I was just saying, I can tell by the, how you said that your routine is you got the same thing every single day. Absolutely. <laughs> they knew. I didn't even have to order it. But it was in this blue collar neighborhood, and it was mainly retired people, which meant they either had worked in ag or in industry. And the way they moved, you could tell that their bodies were broken. Oh. And it's really wow. sad. Now, at the same time, I was invited to go and speak to the Golden Tea, that's T-E-E, -E, club at the uh, Cedar Rapids Country Club. So I went there. It was a very fancy dinner that I was offered. And then I got up and entertained people and spoke. And the people that were there were the same age as at my little dive breakfast place. But their bodies aren't broken. And they're out playing pickleball. And so it became this wow. joke that safety is about letting people play pickleball when they retire. But really what it is for me is we talk about building up the wealth to fund your retirement through an ESOP. Safety is about building up the health and well-being oh, that you can enjoy your retirement without having a broken body. And so I agree that safety, usually you hear people say, we want you to return home at the end of the day in the same or better condition than when you came to work. That's great. I love it. That's like income. You want to get through the end of your paycheck yep. through the end yep. of the month. Safety to me is I want you to have that at the end of your working life. And that's the wealth part. Love it. Um, are you familiar with Peter Atia? Outlive. Um, I, so this you, oh, uh, Daniel. So he wrote a book, it's right up there. Um, it's uh, so he wrote a book. He's been on so if people want to dive into this, I would highly suggest listening to Peter Atia on Andrew Huberman's podcast. It's about three hours. And um, Peter's also been on Rogan as well as all the other Lex Friedman and all these. Uh, but why I love it is there's two parts. Oh, man, I got so many comments. I love what you just said, Daniel, because I, like your example of seeing people at that stage and the contract, the huge contrasting difference is like, so Peter's deal is he's calling it medicine 3.0. He's an MD and it, it's like so ridiculous, Daniel. He's like, he's, he was on Rogan and he was like, okay, here's the deal. I'm an MD. And he goes, I learned zero about nutrition, sleep, exercise, and mental health. Zero. I learned how to prescribe pills and cut people. It's just, it's like, I won't go down that rabbit hole. Cause I could do that. But like, his whole thing is medicine 3.0 and he's got this beautiful graph that I can send you from his book. And he's like, cause I mean, we're all starting to see it with the baby boomers. Uh, like my grandparents 
or a lot of my like i mean the, the people that are in the 80s right now for a decade they're sitting in hospice or you know their memory care and it's like no thank you my my father-in-law's like ryan you're gonna kill me right and i'm like paul like <laughs> like like you and i and he's like i'm i'm half like i don't know exactly how to approach that uh, approach that topic but my point is is like for that extra decade and a half so peter's deal is he wants to have the medicine 3.0 eliminate the marginal decade is what he's calling it and that's exactly what you're talking about daniel is like What's yeah. the point of having $10 million if you can't wipe your own butt or you can't even name your own kids? And and I think the the boomers are starting to realize that as how horrible our system is. <laughs> like, and they're going to be the ones that are going to be stuck there. But like, to your point, what a great way with an ESOP where everybody cares about income and equity, but also like, like the football players we're all seeing that can't tie their shoes. Yeah. So it, 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 it's just not worth it. I mean, it, it's not worth killing yourself or, or just destroying your body for the, the economic means. And that's where the, there, there has to be the balance. And, and that's um, where are you doing it then? Like, what, what are some of the practical ways of like, instead of just, hey, you got home today, you got this data, like, what are different ways? Like, maybe here would be a better question of like, okay, so I think it's obvious of like, cutting and giving pills versus like, Hey, you know, exercise, nutrition, like in your, how would you take that analogy and put into the workforce? Yeah. Um, so uh, using, using data, uh, driven decision-making, you, you can really start to, um, affect the outcome. And so for example, looking for, um, repetitive motion, uh, mm. work because repetitive motion usually causes a lot of soft tissue damage, which builds up over time. And there are different things that you can do with ergonomics, with um, power assist to, to move equipment, to hold equipment, um, positioning work, um, building capacity. So it's not just building uh, fail-safe systems, because the problem with fail-safe systems is that they fail. But um, one of the big uh, areas is moving away from uh, being punitive to being uh, more in a learning mode. So let me give an example. Um, if you almost make a mistake and you don't, and you're caught in the old paradigm, you're punished. As opposed to yeah. those are called often near misses. And if instead of being punished, you're encouraged to bring forward near misses, what you might find out is that, hey, there's a trend that there's this thing happening a lot. We need to fix that. And so now if you put that into the positive vernacular and you start calling them good catches, now you've changed the whole mindset of, yeah, it's, crazy. Not, yeah. It, it's not a bad thing to come forward. As a matter of fact, um, a lot of companies now, you don't want to necessarily reward a good catch because it can create some other issues of making them up or whatever, but you instead punish not coming forward. So if oh, you that's a good way to do it. I, I love it because we used to we used to we used to give these like awards for like we called it the 212 degrees, where like someone did something good and then people were like brokering these fake yep. awards. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> I and like the way that. they do that. Yeah, I mean you can enter into <laughs> raffles, so it's one out of 20, and so it's not oh, cool. guaranteed and all that. But if if you flip the script and you're going to be either okay or, or rewarded for coming forward with a near miss good catch, but you're gonna be punished if you don't. 
then that makes people understand. And, and then you, you go in instead of doing an investigation, you do learning. And again, this is all the stuff that uh, Todd talks about that he's come up with um, in his book, because then you build in capacity into the system instead of having those rules and regulations that are imposed to control the work that actually isn't being done. You know what I love about it all, Daniel, too, is, um, and there, this is slippery slope that we don't have to go down, but like, people are all grownups and they need to act like grownups and take responsibility over the, themselves. The, the fact that like, we're just expecting them to have like a dictator, whether it's the company or the government or whatever it is saying over, like, do this or don't do this. Like let people think for themselves within some parameters. And I think that would breed a lot more self-responsibility, which is what we all want from our people too. Right. I mean, I don't, it's just interesting, like how that mindset, like how that, like, I don't know if it's like the Jack Welch, like, Hey, do what I say kind of stuff. And like, and we're finally starting to see it just didn't work. Well, that's the whole Keynesian thing of corporations don't have emotions because they're not uh, physical people. And instead, you know, ESG and other things, and if nothing else, just the whole a theory of if you want to be a sustainably profitable company, then you have to take these things into consideration. There, there's a great Wall Street Journal article, which I have to Google to find again, that talks about when the airline industry started doing this with um, not punishing pilots for the uh, near misses, but having them come forward. And it took a lot of time to get the unions sure. to buy in and management, that that changed the trajectory of air safety. And there's a statistic in there that was really sobering because I travel a lot. And it said, if that hadn't happened, then the forecast was that today we probably would be having one fatal plane crash every week around the world. Whoa. And I remember something. I remember seeing, I don't remember what the article was either. I don't think it was the same article, but it was like how many disasters there were only a handful of decades ago and i'm like i I traveled like 40 times this year i'm like i, there would, I would have been like one out of two chances i would have been in a crash and and that's where this whole concept of flipping the script and bringing out the near misses the good catches and it's simple stuff like um between a pilot and co-pilot that a pilot says you know flaps up that the co-pilot has to say confirm flaps up as opposed to did they do it? Did they not? Did they mean mm. flaps down or whatever? It's, you know, I, I remember doing, uh, reading case studies in business school about, um, you know, wrong amputations. You go in and you get the wrong limb amputated. Well, then they put an X on the one that you're not supposed to amputate. Well, what if they didn't? There's still, so then you have to mm -hmm. identify which, you know, it's just, it's working with the people that are doing the work. What would actually help that work be safer or less um, error prone? Well, and what I think, and I want to move on to the national security yep. stuff that you and I talking about. Like, I think conscious capitalism, I don't know if I, I think I read that book after you and I talked and like, I, I say to everybody, like, if you're the greediest person on the planet, you would still do this stuff. Like, because you, you be outperform, right? <laughs> and then that's why there are several ESOPs which aren't 100% ESOP because the owners understand that by giving employees a slice of that pie, the whole pie is going to grow. So they're still going to have more if, if they're really thinking about it in just right. very sort of greedy economic terms, that it's actually to their economic benefit to give mm -hmm. a slice of mm -hmm. the pie to their employees. So let's talk about uh, protecting our country, too, because yeah. I think uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll tee it up with I read this book like 
a handful of years ago, Daniel, and they were talking about like cybersecurity. This is back when I was coming from my old uh, tech background, and they were they were talking about like, well, you know, no one ever is concerned about. Um, no one's. I'm not important enough for people to steal my my information. But I heard this one story where this Chinese company. They, what they did is they had the cy- cyber attack where they went in and they got some guy on some fantasy football click. He clicked it, and they this company was a green technology business, and the Chinese company went in their ERP system, stopped all their purchase orders, sucked or dried them up of cash, and then uh, their PE firm came in and bought the green technology for like pennies on the dollar. So it was like a multi-dimensional strategy not just like hey we're going in to get someone's social security number yeah and there, there's legislation which again i'd have to google and I, I don't know it at hand um which has to do with manufacturing as a national security issue the, the reason being that there, there are foreign countries that are you know with the silver tsunami and all these companies that are changing hands foreign investors are sometimes buying companies just to get ownership of the IP, the technology, and then they could easily just close the business, move that technology offshore. And that is actually a national security concern. And so we, we, we've benefited greatly with uh, partnering with the Manufacturing Extension Partnerships. There's one in every country. It's under the National Institute for Standards and Technology. And for three years, I was on the board, and for two of those years, chaired the advisory board of CIRRUS, the Center for Industrial Research and Services, which is the Iowa uh, Manufacturing Extension Partnership. And as I worked with these groups in different uh, states, I would stress to them that what one of uh, what what they do is they help companies, not just manufacturing, but primarily manufacturing companies, to have tools, expertise, access to. Uh, technology systems, uh, consulting to help them remain competitive. And one of the issues is that way it stays in the community, in the state, in the country. And so I would stress with all of them that one of the best tools that you can have is to convert a company to an ESOP because you're investing in the employees, in the company, the technology, the community. And when the employees are the owners, they're not going to all get together one day and say, hey, why don't we just move our company uh, offshore and and out (laughs) of our community? And so, you know, it it is inherently one of the best ways to ensure a continued local presence. And I was able to get... um, quite a few people interested in that. And actually, a couple of years ago, um, presented to the national board of the Manufacturing Extension Partnership and just said, you you really should consider this as one of the tools in your toolboxes for not only maintaining manufacturing competitiveness, but addressing that issue of what would happen if uh, these manufacturing companies were sold to foreign investors, foreign countries, and that IP was taken offshore. And I've gotten a number of people that have really responded positively to that, um, including one person who said that was part of the impetus of why he just uh, last week finished converting his company from family ownership to employee ownership. And so it really would be a great way if you, you instead of selling companies to private equity, which is then going to get it into that resale, if you could get it into uh, an employee ownership structure, that's just going to keep the company locally based. It's just like, duh. <laughs> like, it and I, it's, it's so, it, I want to preface it with the listeners before they start uh, crucifying me. Like, it, like I, 
all of this it's not right for everybody i just want to always say exactly that. but like daniel like when i think about it it's like and this is one of my missions that it's it's not to create every company into an esap but it's to give people the choices and it's like the reason like i mean think about how many people with the rust belt i mean how many people the jobs you know dislocated and all this stuff that's going on in the rural america and it's like and national security and inequality and employee happiness and like and 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 like at the end of the day we need to create a good freaking company with good cash flow and i think that that is like yeah. so like i want to hear your thoughts on this because like this is what this has been a byproduct of our training program and it wasn't the intent which is interesting to me and that's why i've like that's why i've followed this rabbit hole to this conversation that we're having is to view and run a company like a financial asset, you got to create sustainable, predictable, transferable future cash flow. Yes. And you have to manage your risk. So if you have increased EBITDA in there you're, and you're de-risking it, you're increasing your multiple and you're managing your debt correctly, then you can essentially have so it's that target equity valuation based on the cash flow valuation. If you're reasonable with the timeline. You can do whatever the hell you want, but the problem is that I see, Daniel, and this is where it has been interesting, is that most of the people that were calling me up over the last decade would call me up and say, I want out. And it's like my father who wanted out of his job, but we didn't understand how valuations worked or how any of this stuff works. So like we had to sell the whole company. We gutted the entire business so he could get out of his job and get some money and not talk about copiers every day. But the, the problem is, is like what happens is, is like, and I just got done talking to someone uh, yesterday about this. We're like, the moment, and I, this happened with my father, and I see this happen hundreds of times with the people that come through our program. The moment that someone is in that mindset, good freaking luck telling them, like, like uh, here's what I always, uh, I mean, it's not a joke, but it's kind of a joke. Hey, Daniel, that's great. You can get out right now, but you got to gut your company, do all these things, sell the private, not even private equity, but a strategic buyer who's all this, this ramifications. If your timeline dictates the price so then if like if like in if i were to say to you hey by the way daniel all you have to do to get to the valuation that you want is forego all your distributions for five years put in a new erp system hire a new president first one's probably not going to work out so well so you're gonna have to go through two of them then you're gonna ha like have to figure out how to implement ai and it's going to take you five years then you can get to the cash flow valuation of an esop and you're going hey dude did you not listen to me i want out and it's usually the job and the time so like but when I say that the, the byproduct of our program has been realized, like the people that are coming through it have the time and energy. And then they're saying, hey, well, like at least I can have the ESAP be the plan B to monetize my company. It might not be their plan A, but like this is why I like, I, like going out and just promote because Steve Storkin is a friend of mine and like going out and just Me promoting too. East. Yeah, I, I love the guy. <laughs> and it's like just the ESAP becomes myopic and it's not it's like one puzzle piece of the whole puzzle so i don't know if you have any comments because like what i see is like this is the it's good cash flow but we have to focus on that for a long time i do and as always you you have clarified something for me talking to you ryan because let's go back to that want out so it's not that i said i want out but let's pretend that's what i said mm -hmm. when i wanted out i didn't have to force the company to go through all that stuff because we were an ESOP because we had worked really hard to have a high performing board, a really good leadership team, employee owners. You bought the good are, company. <laughs> well, and so when I wanted out, I could go out, but there's succession. And so there's a new leader 
and it's almost seamless. And that's what an ESOP provides because it's all about sustainability. And when you build the sustainability, which is not just the financial uh, side I was just saying, of it. Can you, can you touch on when you said succession, like I find that so many people, it's just the exit planning, succession, consulting, hodgepodge of crap for someone to get an engagement. But like, what, like define succession from a leadership role and how you handle that and the financial asset. Cause you got, you handled both of those, right? So the succession was uh, two years ago, I went to the board and I said, at the end of 2023, I would like to be able to step out of the role of president and CEO of, of Folands. And we came up with a two-year plan, which was about shoring up developing internally to get to the right place to then go out with a defined set of uh, values, traits, characteristics to find the right person to pass the baton to, to, to lead forward. And so the first part is the shoring up, and that's really developing on the financial side, and that can be investments in advanced manufacturing technology, process documentation, et cetera, et cetera, gain the business into a good place, gain the capital structure into a good place, um, going through something which is literally called a sustainability study, which ESOPs go through, and um, being able to see whether or not you have the cash flows, the repurchase obligation forecast and, and a plan to pay for it all. So go through all that part, but then there's a leadership aspect. And so I spent a lot of time with the leadership team, getting them to a place where they were really elevated to have more transparency, more ownership, to be carrying a lot more of the message than just the CEO, because mm. that permeates to a different level of trust. Employees trust the people that are closest to them. They also want to hear from the uh, CEO, but you really need to sort of get that messaging and ownership to that level. And then, of course, working on uh, the culture of every employee owner. And, of course, the uh, Licensed Act is the foundation of what every employee owner has uh, at Foliance and really strengthening uh, that. So by the time you get to the passing of the baton, there's sustainability built into the system, the financial, the capital, the repurchase obligation, forecast, cash flow, and all that. There's succession built into leadership that there's going to be as little disruption as possible. There's always going to be uncomfortableness when somebody mm -hmm. new comes mm -hmm. in, and it's there changed. should be. It's change, it's new perspective. Um, and what really holds it all together is that there's that really strong, cohesive organizational strength of the employee owners holding it all together because you've worked hard on that culture to get them to understand that as employee owners, they share the value of the company and their participation in the ownership is, is what holds it all together. I love it. Would you say that like what I, when I hear that, so there's two things that I think of is like that hard work means less drama and chaos sometimes <laughs> sometimes <laughs> not fair enough <laughs> that's it <laughs> all right all right no, people like, are <laughs> wonderful because they can react in many different ways yeah and, yeah yeah and uh, when enough. there is that it's often a learning opportunity uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah fair enough fair enough like what because like, what i like to say is like it, it's the hard work gets you prepped to have yeah. as little or as it is that mitigates the drama and the chaos because like versus different owner 
is it about the, you know, like all of the permeating like thoughts and the narrative because it's all the narratives that people make up in their head when there's ambiguity and um what i was gonna say um so you you and i ch- chatted a little bit about uh about the spectrum of employee ownership so like i think this is important because like yes yep. you're a proponent of esops but like you also like well you and i talked about the purest form of capitalism so it's not like a one trick pony and so like maybe explain your sure. mindset in a spectrum of how things work and what your thoughts are on it yep and again going back to my disclaimer i'm not representing the thoughts of anyone except for myself um, <laughs> i have always believed in spectrums and so this goes back to the earliest days of when i would be in, uh, involved in socially responsible investing which was before impact investing before esg and there's a spectrum even there between charities which had almost no metrics to um, nonprofits that had some sort of measurement to then uh, impact philanthropy, which sort of blurred with impact investing, which would get all the way to the other end of sort of the greedy, irresponsible capitalism of just everything for me without sharing anything with, with people. And as a believer that there is a spectrum and you can't just say that there's one point on that spectrum, which is right. And so, so awesome. the same yep. thing with employee ownership. Let's start with maybe on one side, and there there are co-ops where it's one vote per every employee. ESOPs, not quite the same. Um, shared value, not necessarily shared control. Uh, employee ownership trusts, where it's more a sharing of current year profits than holding shares with capital appreciation to the end of your retirement to what uh, Pete Stavros is uh, promoting, which is not really an EOT or an ESOP, but it is getting money into the hands of employees to systems where it's just a single owner, it's PE ownership, and employees really don't get anything. It is better that there are these points along the spectrum, because not everything is going to be one point. And so it'd be myopic to think that there's either nothing or it's one point on the spectrum. What's important is to discern the differences between the points on the spectrum. So again, there's uh, been a lot of people that have really lauded Pete Stavros for what he's doing. There's some uh, people that have been criticizing him. I'd rather that the people that are in his deals are gaining money than that they're not. It's just important to discern the difference. EOTs, um, are very prevalent outside the US. And that has a lot to do with tax regimes and other things. And I would rather that there are EOTs than there are not. Personally, yes, I really do like the ESOP because I like the fact that it's addressing the income, which is this year, as well as the wealth, which is where you get to at the end of your life. But do you think you there's a way to, to like wrap a, like a rapid trust around the trust in order to make sure it's not sold? Because I think one of the biggest fears right now with how prevalent uh, PE is, and this is what kind of happened to my partners, where I mean, if I'm a PE firm, I could go attack or go like seek out ESAPs that are fairly well run companies and offer them enough to trigger the sale with the trustee. So, like, I mean, that's kind of the big fear that's going yeah. on right now. Is there a way to address that within the ESAP structure? Um, so there are some ESAPs that have. Um, added on layers of protection, like becoming a B Corp or putting in uh, 
sort of a, a, a very onerous process that um, somebody would need to do in order to come in from the outside and, and have an offer. But again, I'll say something which, you know, not everyone believes in. Employee ownership to me does not equate to eternal, no change of ownership. If, if somebody comes to you, if, if your house, just use a round number, is valued at 100,000 and somebody offers you 2.5 million, are you really going to say no, because I, I don't want to have to move, et cetera? There are times where when you own something, it is going to be in your better interest to sell because yeah, you're it's... not going to get the same reward, no matter how much time, risk, you might be in a declining industry, the forecasts aren't good, you're not going to be able to keep up with consolidation in your industry, something else. And so, yes, you there, there are ways to make that hurdle higher so that you're not going to be selling at a smaller premium. Mm -hmm. But there are probably going to be times where selling is going to be in the best interest of all concern. It's like a it's it seems to be more and more rare where like just nuanced thinking is actually you know a, a differentiator these days because like the couple of things that you mentioned like it's a trade it's a spectrum and like it's it i think about it like this daniel it's like okay like our body is a system it's like i mean i think about how insane this is, the medical system is someone a doctor told my sister that they isolated one of her hormones and i was like what like it's just hilarious even how do you isolate one of the molecules in her bloodstream or whatever it is like my point is like well, it's a system and so like the system needs to work in balance and so like we need all of these but like i think it was delta's pension fund daniel i saw delta's pension fund which is 13 billion dollars 79 percent of it's allocated to pe and vc and real estate like it's like Okay, well, when that happens in the human body, it's called cancer. And it's yeah. like, it's part of our body, but when it goes out of whack, it's destructive. So it's like, you need the spectrum, I think. Yeah. And people should pick an option for the right reasons. But then, like you said, with the ESAP, just think about it. So don't make it so easy that you can skip around the actual original intent. And, and I'll get back to that article that I wrote. They are businesses. And you have to think about them as businesses. There's volatility, there's cycles, there's ups and downs, whether it's in the industry, the geography, there are times where interest rates can drive certain their businesses. And so, yes, all the wonderful stuff that we've been talking about and needing to get the education, the culture and safety and all that, and just always treat them as businesses. You know, this has been so fun to catch up. I'm, uh, I really enjoyed this. I, uh, what is your, what are your thoughts and hopes with the Go ESAP Daniel Goldstein LLC? So it, it is not a consulting company. It's just a way to effectively manage my own affairs. I'm, I'm going to continue serving on boards of ESOPs. I'm going to continue working to advocate for employee ownership, uh, both in the US and, and beyond. I'm going to continue doing research and writing. I have been doing some teaching. I may uh, be increasing that. Uh, we'll, we'll see as we go forward and do some other stuff, which is nothing to do with employee ownership. Ride, ride your motorcycle or like do you know do some other ride things? my motorcycle <laughs> be out on my stand-up paddle board i may actually That's get awesome. out on my snowboard for the first time in about eight years oh no way i uh i'm i last year was the first year out that i didn't go out west and i'm uh i'm trying to rally some people to go out and get get out and on a strap on my snowboard <laughs> make sure i don't kill myself 
Daniel, this has been so fun. Where can, where can people reach you if they want to reach out and uh, learn more and uh, connect with you? Go ESOP LLC at gmail.com. Awesome. And LinkedIn too. You've got the, you got the article and you got a bunch of other stuff out there and we'll make sure we have uh, links in the show notes. Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to catch up. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for listening into that conversation. I hope you found the time valuable. If you enjoyed the conversation, please leave the show a review on your podcast player. We're constantly trying to up those reviews. It helps a lot with the visibility. And if you didn't catch the commercial in the middle of that episode, there's two different ways that we can help you. One is if you want that kind of clarity, we have a coaching program that is based on the five intense growth principles and uses the material to help you get that kind of clarity on your target equity valuation and income that you need on the way towards that valuation. What you want from the business long term and why, and then how to get aligned with your leadership and your partners so that way everybody's working in the right direction to get you what you want. And the second way is if you want to jump right into the data and you want to actually build out your financial roadmap with your three statements and tie your financials and your operational data to that target equity valuation, my team offers a complimentary financial assessment. Either way, all you have to do is go use the link in the show notes below, schedule a discovery call with me. We can walk through your situation, figure out if there's a fit or not. And if not, I can point you in the right direction. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next week.